I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 4. Daniel 4, and we're going to read but three short verses in just a moment. First three verses. I was encouraged yesterday at the men's breakfast by the 15 men that were able to show up and would encourage any men in the church toward our February 26th men's breakfast. I mention that here because we are delving into a book by Richard Owen Roberts titled Salvation in Full Color. 20 Sermons by Great Awakening Preachers. The intent behind that study and the theme of that book is to take the term salvation and the doctrine of salvation and to flesh it out, to lay out a fuller picture of the doctrine of salvation with a warm revival hope by exposing the readers of these 20 sermons, these scripture-laden, God-centered sermons by Great Awakening preachers, meaning mainly 1700s, and the ilk of the Puritans, meaning 16th century and after, some say ending with Charles Spurgeon, laying out these 20 sermons in a particular order, a particular order to convey God's work on behalf of His people, to redeem for Himself a people, fleshing out what salvation looks like scripturally, using key terms instead of flatly. So I'm looking forward to that study. I mention it here because I believe these first three verses set aside a theme for Daniel and declare a theme that resounds throughout Scripture. God is at work among His people to offer salvation to lost, hopeless, and helpless sinners like me and like you. And so today we see God at work as his, in His sovereignty to turn people to Himself, even in an Old Testament book like Daniel in chapter 4. And it's helpful every now and then to slow down and take a few verses instead of taking 30 like we've been the last few weeks. So I do intend on finishing Daniel 4 next week, but I just want to mainly look at three verses today, and particularly, right before we read them here, to just tell you how I think of them, I think of three points following consecutively from three verses. This is a king publishing a statement about salvation that is public in verse 1, that is also private, talked about in verse 2, for me, for me, and is also permanent, talked about in verse 3. So if you want to follow those points this morning and the subpoints that will invariably fall beneath them, you'll see this as a published, almost presidential statement of a head of state, in this sense, in the 6th century in Babylon, a published statement 
coming at the beginning of our chapter 4. It's a statement that contains a theme of Daniel that also carries a theme of Scripture discussing salvation, the work of God in people's lives that is public, that is private, and that is permanent. Let's read now these three short verses. I hope that you have a print Bible today. If you don't, you'll be able to follow along quite well on the screen, but you might not see the indentation of verse 3, which is important today. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. Again, verse 1, the public. Verse 2, the private. And verse 3, the permanent aspects of God's work. And, And yes, He is at work among His people. And He's at work in the world to offer salvation to lost, hopeless, and helpless sinners. Well, first today, let's take it on its part. Let's look at verse 1, that this salvation is offered with a public dimension. And we're going to see this public dimension for conversion, to make it clearly, to be offered, available to all, and how it brings peace to those who receive it. So within this first point, verse 1, let's just consider the public aspect of this proclamation. We see this conversion of King Nebuchadnezzar headlining a chapter before the story about how he's humbled actually happens. And so as you read through the details, this this text reads like uh, a head of a nation giving a presidential address right from the start. A good friend of mine taught me this week about RHIP, rank has its privilege. King Nebuchadnezzar had rank, and it had its privilege. And in later years, after conversion, that privilege paled in comparison to the surpassing greatness of knowing God. God was greater than anything that he had in terms of earthly power and rank. In my view, this original Nebuchadnezzar is not another, but is King Nebuchadnezzar. And I, re- I reflected on some things that Don Carson wrote about Nebuchadnezzar, this, this king that seems to have come to God and submitted himself before God and humbled himself before God based on Daniel 4. Here's what he wrote. He said, Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 4, which you're going to read about over the course of this next week, it reflects his megalomania. He uses a couple of big words here. It reflects his megalomania. He has a, Nebuchadnezzar has a narcissistic personality. He is corroded by his own greatness, yet is so insecure that his grandiose fantasies must be nurtured by incessant self-admiration. Unlike the egotist, who is supremely self-confident and does not care at all what anyone thinks of him or her, the narcissist is different. The narcissist is often hypersensitive and emotionally fragile. And then Carson throws it all away. He says, regardless of all psychological speculations about narcissism, the man's arrogance before God is unrestrained, despite what we've read about in chapters 2 and 3 of Daniel. And God resolves to humble him. To provide a bit of a foil, if you were to read forward to chapter 5, you'll see Belshazzar 
a later king in Babylon, in fact, last one, receives similar messaging and calls to repent, as does King Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4. But Belshazzar does not. We have no record of him repenting of sin and pursuing justice and righteousness, humbling himself like we have in the record of Daniel chapter 4. Briefly, Nebuchadnezzar is humbled and Belshazzar is not. Pride will become an unfolding theme in chapter 4. It's not the main theme today, though, because for the purposes of the writing, the English Bible takes the Aramaic text and translates it as the headline to chapter 4. We think rightly, rather than the ending of chapter 3. The reason for that is, this is a wonderful, celebratory, thematic introduction to a story that's going to have dark twists and turns with this king who is going to have a condition by which he becomes animal-like. It's an odd story. It is a hopeful story. And I think we get right from the start this, this rank-driven address that, yes, indeed, I receive this message. In fact, the first three verses reads similar in tone and tenor as the last four verses, 34, 35, 36, and 37. You may be able to note those themes with just a very, very brief glance and a few key words that we've read. King Nebuchadnezzar, Sinclair Ferguson, said this of him. He said, when he least expected it, God spoke to him. Calvin rightly commented on Nebuchadnezzar. He said, when God therefore wishes to lead us to repentance, he is compelled to repeat his blows continually, to continually repeat his blows, either because we are not moved when he chastises us with his hand, or we seem roused for the time, and then we return again to our former way. He is therefore compelled to redouble his blows. God broke in, broke in upon the spiritual lethargy of Nebuchadnezzar. I love that use of language. Repeated blows broke into the spiritual lethargy of, of Nebuchadnezzar and sent him a nightmare, a dream that both frightened and troubled him. It took time for the fuller spiritual sensitivity to burst through, though, that God always gets his person. Charles Spurgeon called the Lord the hound of heaven. He said, in light of the new covenant, I do believe we slander Christ when we think we are to draw the people by something else but the preaching of Christ crucified. The message of salvation is a scarlet thread that runs from Genesis to Revelation. God pursues and God gets. I know of a New Testament verse. The apostle said, I want to know nothing, saved to know nothing, but Christ and Him crucified. I think that any preacher worth their weight in salt would say that. How often we miss the task, but how important it is to see Christ and the message of salvation in each and every page of text of Scripture, including and specifically in the Old Testament. How can you read verse 1 and not think of God's broad-sweeping and grandiose plan to redeem for himself a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Nebuchadnezzar gets it in the 6th century B.C. because he gets something of God. That's what it means, I believe, to be converted, is to get something of God. Verse 1 says that the king said he made a proclamation to all kinds of people, peoples and languages and nations that are, are dwelling on the earth, and he says, Peace be multiplied to you. 
Let's talk about the all and then about the peace within this first aspect of verse, this first one, this first point, this salva- statement of salvation that is public. Let's consider the allness of this text. It's available universal, universally. You may remember from Revelation last year in preaching through that text, the prolificness of the phrase that I just mentioned, redeeming for himself every tribe, a people from every tribe and tongue, a people that's currently scattered among all the nations. So languages are no barrier to God's people at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. There'll be no barrier to God's people when we come together in the new heavens and the new earth. Our King provides the Spirit for all necessary translation work to be done. We must nurture a heart and a mind for the salvation of the nations. This was part of the main point last week in the sermon. And in our prayer petition today, Lord willing, we will include a plea for the nations. I would urge you to nurture a heart and a mind for salvation to go to the nations. That the public proclamation of salvation, that it would go to the nations. That people would be knowing that salvation is available to them regardless of their mother tongue, their citizenship, regardless of what type of person that they're considered in our moment of time. We need to nurture a heart and mind for this salvation to go to the nations. We need to pray for it. And so I would urge you to study missions to the world. Subscribe to Operation World. They have a free email that comes to my inbox every day. Pray for different nations and their demography and how to pray for them. Support a faithful missionary. If you don't know of one, see one of our elders. We'll talk about it. And talk about that support in your family worship time. We've recently spoken of the persecuted church, like Afghanistan, to China, Cuba, Egypt, North Korea. And we need to have hearts that are turned toward the gospel going to all people. It's to be universally made available. The gospel of Matthew says that this gospel, this salvation, must be proclaimed to all the nations, and then the end will come. Far too often, we are caught navel-gazing about the end coming instead of being about the Lord's business of getting the gospel to the nations. The end will come. The gospel must go. We have to take the gospel to all nations. We must see salvation shared with all different types of people. Because the great effect of salvation being shared is the conversion of people. God promises to do the work of conversion. And he tasks us with the work of sharing, of proclaiming, of making it available to all. And peace is the result of knowing God. Peace is our great hope. It says in verse 1, peace be multiplied to you. Peace be multiplied to you. It's a hope. I remember spending some time when we spent some time, Alyssa and I did in Israel in 2012, the greeting in Hebrew of the people, the common greeting, uh, though there was plenty of English spoken there, as well as other languages, it's kind of a hub for different languages, they would greet you with shalom. Hello is functional equivalent for us. But shalom is the Hebrew word that means peace. Deeply rooted in a Jewish and Christian understanding of the world is God is bringing peace. 
certainly a peace that starts internally with the believers, but it does not stay there. It is a peace that spreads out externally amongst God's gathered people, particularly in the church today. So we gather together as believers and have a common covenant and a common mission. It is a peace that extends out into our neighborhoods as we fulfill the great commandment, as well as the great commission to love our neighbors and to take the gospel forward. But it is a peace that has not been fully realized yet. We're to pray for it. We're to live it out. We're to offer it as an as a evident fruit of salvation that comes to the Lord alone. Verse 1, we have a pagan turned God-fearing king publicly proclaiming a universally offered message of salvation to people. This is the God. Peace be multiplied to you. I find it interesting that a despot that conquers, puts people under his thumb, would offer and celebrate the multiplication of peace. That seems to be evidence of a changed heart. So whether at home in Babylon, seeking its welfare, like Daniel 1-6 to talks about, or in the fulfillment of getting away from pagan despots and living in a more favorable society like Daniel 7-12 to seems to predict, God's people are to be sought in life everywhere they go, seeking the welfare of the city in which they are in, and praying that the gospel will go forth and laboring the gospel will go forth to every single people group. And when people receive the miracle of salvation, they slowly sidle up to this beatitude that says, blessed are the peacemakers. We become, as Romans says, more than conquerors through our Lord because of His work in us. When we are at peace, we can pray for and pursue a peace that passes understanding. So to conclude this first of three points this morning, in this very first verse, considering this, this, this thought within Daniel and within the Bible, I just want to ask you a question. Are you at peace? Internally, are you at peace? And if not, would you put your faith in God who promises that a fruit of His salvation, that a fruit of the Spirit is peace? That you can have peace and share peace. I'm not talking about phony baloney peace. I'm not talking about mealy mouth peace or weak peace. I'm talking about the kind of peace that comes through the strength of Christ. His work in us. Trust Him. Know Him. Would you pray, if you in fact are with me in this prayer, would you pray for the peace of the saints at our church? Would you pray for peace within the body? That peace would be multiplied here and shared there. Now our second point, after this salvation as a public aspect of proclamation, let's consider the private aspect of salvation for King Nebuchadnezzar and for ourselves. And let's consider it under the subheads of testimony and miracles and sharing of that private testimony. It's personal. It's for me. Look at verse 2. It has seemed good to me first person, to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. There is something about 
the reception of God's salvation that moves from a cold affirmation of a doctrine to a deeply personal, what God has done for me. It is possible to have a conscience that has been shaped even by the Word of God through perhaps even even believing parents. It is possible to essentially coldly ratify the things of Scripture, but bypass the deeply personal nature of private worship and of love for God because of who He is and thankfulness to God because of what He has done. This is where testimony comes in. It has seemed good to me, this once pagan king said, that I should share what God has done for me. I ask you this morning, what has God done for you? What has He done for you? What shareable, shareworthy things has God done for you? And some of you might say, well, I don't, you know, I'm, I, yeah, I'm, I know the Lord, but my, you know, I don't, I don't have some grand story of salvation. It's not this, this rags to riches kind of story. It wasn't this sort of where I can say it was, I was just this horrid person that everybody despised, and now I'm this lovely person everybody loves. I'd like to speak to that for just a few brief moments. Uh, the miracle of salvation is no less miraculous in your life because you were, were somewhat moral before you got saved. Like it's not less. One of the things we're studying as we look at I, I, the study that I mentioned from the top, Salvation in Full Color, is the order of salvation. And I just pulled chapter 18 of, of the systematic theology that we reference a lot here and kind of looked at the texture of salvation in the life of every believer by looking at the order of salvation. And he speaks of biblical doctrines of election and the gospel call and regeneration or being born again, but conversion like faith and repentance, justification, being in right legal standing with God, aspects of salvation like adoption, membership into God's family, or sanctification, right conduct of life, or perseverance, remaining a Christian throughout your life because the saints endure to the end, and glorification, receiving a resurrected body. You see how these terms, as you read through Scripture, eliminate a sort of vanilla understanding of your testimony. If God purposed from the foundations of the earth to do that for you, I'd say you got all right testimony, don't you? But wait, there's more. You get all the testimonies of all these people, too. You can share their testimony. But wait, there's more. You get all the testimonies of all these people. You can share their testimony. I don't know how often I, I can tell you I'll be meeting with someone and, and trying to explain salvation to them, and I'll be like, hey, so-and-so in the church, you know, they got some experiences like you do, and they came to faith like this, and this is something they talk about whenever they came to faith. This is, this is their story. This is their testimony. We get to, it's not even that we're, we're, we're borrowing so much as we're, we're a part of one body. We're sharing testimonies as even we share our personal testimony and our private worship of God. 
This is truly miraculous. It is a truly wondrous sign of God's fidelity and presence that you are saved, that these aspects of salvation are happening in your life, that you will endure, that one day you'll have a glorified body. These are wonderful, miraculous aspects. So when you look at chapter 4, verse 2, it seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Don't short sell your coming to know God in favor of walking on water, being spared death in a fiery furnace, someone else's ability to interpret a dream. There are a lot of things going on in salvation history that God is doing both through supernatural and through seemingly ordinary grace-based activity. We need to be very, very careful about discounting the miracle of salvation in our lives, which God seems to never promote that we do. We also need to be very careful about insisting on signs and wonders of the outward sense in our day. I do believe we should pray for them. We should pray that God would heal, fix, support, encourage. And we, plural, should pray together for those things as we seek to do each week. And we should be informed about how to pray by one another. You know, when someone messages you, or when you run across a post, if you do social media, that offers a heartfelt prayer request, please write it down. Put it wherever, however you chronicle and keep up with those things that you need to pray for. Seek to keep those things written down and tend that list. And let us be praying together and learning how to pray for one another in meaningful and specific ways so that we can see meaningful and specific answers to prayer and praise God for those. But let us be careful about having a flat view of the miraculous. I think that's what Jesus is warning against in John 4. Even while doing signs and wonders, he warned against expecting them as a condition of belief for salvation. So consider John chapter 4, verses 46 through 54 on this score. So Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man, this official, heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son. For he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to this official, and these words are operative here, think about these things, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, the servant met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour 
when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Notice that the official believed the word, verse 50, and spoke that the word that was spoke, and he believed it by faith before seeing confirmation at a later time. This parallels with us. We believe the miracle of salvation by faith before we see full glorification of our bodies by sight on the last day. We walk by faith, not by sight, as Scripture says in another place. Those coming to Christ have seen God do things. But those that have come to Christ need not insist on God doing things at their behest. Pray, don't insist. Jesus said to the sign seekers that there would be no sign given to them but the sign of Jonah. And the sign given to Jonah, Nineveh, was repent. Repent and believe. So Jesus, even as the embodiment of all supernatural fixes, refused to make his ministry exclusively about it. Perhaps this was to point to the meaning of miracles of salvation and Scripture, and this time, as well as to show us that the return of Christ will again be an amping up of the supernatural. Jesus cares for us, but he is not coerced into miracles on command. The gifts of the Spirit guide us to pray together to him to do the impossible and to live with the results even when they hurt. I think that's a message that we can clearly get from Daniel 3 when Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, testify. Maybe I live, maybe I die, but know that that's the one true God as you're throwing me into that fiery furnace. And they lived, but they didn't know that when they said it. They didn't know how it would come out. Within this second point, this, this, private, this private testimony of faith, this, the, the work of God privately and miraculously to save us, the wonder of salvation within our lives. It's a brief word about sharing salvation with other people, even based on testimony. Testimony at its best points us to God's Word. Our experiences can sometimes be just that, they're experiences. And we can know that we know that the Lord has bought us and that we're His, but over the course of your life, experiences, well, they may take on different shades you may have deep, deeper depths of understanding of your experiences. As we pray for revival, we pray for a revival that's not simply based on our stories, as good as those are, but that is based on the glad recovery of the Word of God for the people of God. The Word of God and the people of God will shape, the Spirit will shape the people of God and make the people of God into what He wants for them. And the gospel will go forth from there and stories will take care of themselves. I want to ask you, Today, who is the hardest person you can imagine to be saved? I just want you to stop and think about a person, maybe you know them, maybe it's a figure in the world, that you you think to yourself, you wouldn't even want to waste time praying for that person to convert because it's in your mind it's just unfathomable. And I want to ask you today to add that person to your prayer list for their conversion. You say, Ugh. I mean, all the things you say. I said it in my study this week. I, all those things I say. I thought, no, I'm going to say that. And here's what I'm going to say it. Because 
Nebuchadnezzar was probably just about the least, the most hated, the least liked, the least likely figure in the 6th century B.C. to ever utter a proclamation like that. And yet, he did. Look at Acts 9. Think about Saul, that we we know as Paul, the Apostle Paul. I mean, it's a a testimony on par, in a sense, to Nebuchadnezzar's. He's 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 a very accomplished man in Jewish life. He's orchestrating the killing of Christians, oversaw the first Christian martyr, Stephen. And I mean, he converts. So I, I think it would behoove us to, to pray for the salvation of the hardest person you can think of. It might be a, an exercise that would recalibrate us toward prayer and toward our, our need and our hope and our belief that God is very much at work in administering salvation in our day, because He is, even in the hardest cases. We might become back in touch with how hard our case is. I mean, Matt's case was pretty hard. Was yours? I mean, what kind of pride did he have to crack through to get through your thick skull and into your heart? Now, you know you didn't do that on your own. You know you didn't make that happen. The gratitude that you have for what He's done for you, it's miraculous. Take that same faith to your prayer for the seemingly hard people in our lives. And don't stop praying. Don't be beleaguered and and battled out of prayer. Ponder anew, as the lyric says, what the Almighty can do. I say today, ponder anew what the Almighty has done. He's done great work in your life through the miracle of salvation. We are all employed in this role of sharing our salvation with people. You're employed. You're not fired from that role. People may need to hear the gospel again and again and again and again, once more, once more. It seems as if Nebuchadnezzar had more than one opportunity to hear the faithful witness of Daniel and his friends. So, You need to know the gospel. You need to be able to explain it as you have received it and explain it scripturally. And as members, one of the things that we covenant to do is to guard the gospel, meaning we protect the witness of the church, and then to proclaim the gospel, meaning we share the true gospel with people through all the different mechanisms that we've talked about already today and more. So if you're fuzzy on this, I'll do do two things for you. One, I'll say, you should come to our next membership class. We'll offer it again in March because we, we spend a good deal of time just helping you get the understanding of the gospel, what it is, because it's, we never run past that. We must understand it. It's our, it's our job to share it, to know it enough to share it, and just, to, just to, to never drift or neglect this great salvation, but hold it. But I'll also do another thing. In summary, the gospel is God's good work to save helpless sinners. Just a sentence. It's God's good work to save helpless sinners. It's His work. And what we have before us today is a a proclamation of the peace that God gives, of the way that God multiplies it, of testimony about God Most High and what He has done for a human being and what He does for human beings, which takes us to our third and final point. The salvation that He's 
shared with a public proclamation and delved into with private aspects is permanent. It's eternal. It's total. Consider the permanency of the salvation through the lens of doxology, which we sang, but also I mean the umbrella term doxology, worship, giving praise. Consider it through dominion and through generations. Consider those three words within this third point, doxology, dominion, and generations, and the permanency of the salvation. So consider, consider this, this doxological aspect of this. I told you earlier in the sermon to notice how verse 3 is offset. And if you ha- I also urge you to get a print Bible. I have a print Bible. You can look over at Daniel 4, 34 and 35, and you'll see how it's, it's offset. And you can also turn forward to chapter 6, verses 26 and 27. We'll get to the, the account of Daniel in the lion's den. And you'll see how it's, it's inset. And... You can look back at Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. And in a print Bible, you'll see Daniel blessing the God of heaven. And that bless, that, that praise, that doxology, is, it's, in, it's, it's tabbed in. It's set in. And for all that we could say about when this occurs in Scripture, a simple understanding is it's doxological. Dox is the Greek word praise, to praise God. So we get the, the term doxology. This text is offset to help us have an understanding that a summary of this theme of salvation, and indeed God's sovereignty as well, His sovereignty is in His kingdom is replete throughout the book. But salvation is a big part of Daniel because it's a big part of the Bible. It is a theme. And we see in verse 3 the praise that comes from God's work in hopeless and helpless sinners. Verse 3 says, I'll read it one more time, How great are His signs and mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. So the permanency of this brings praise. A lot of these thoughts actually, God, I want to give credit to a pastor named David Helm. He talks about how these verses and these texts like this help us to see what he calls the melodic line of Daniel that reflects the melodic line of Scripture. He says this, If the book of Daniel were a piece of music, of sheet music, it would be impossible to read it without hearing the themes of kings and kingdoms prominently placed along the melodic line. These important notes appear in every chapter, and together they form a tune that is pulled through the book from beginning to end. The emphasis of the book reveals God's design in establishing His own everlasting king and kingdom in the world. The value of seeing this theme is not merely to see that God is sovereign over all things, which of course He is, but it includes seeing God install His king and kingdom in the world for salvation. This aspect of Daniel, that God's king is savior and that God's kingdom brings salvation, can be overlooked by the reader. We tend to focus barely on God's sovereignty, which sometimes for us is limited to judgment. As a result, the connections between Daniel and the first coming of Christ, complete with his death and resurrection, does not receive much attention. But the king and kingdom prophesied about in Daniel finds its primary interpretation in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The words of Jesus on the road to Emmaus provide a balanced guide to approaching the Old Testament. So consider Luke 24 for this, verses 24 to 27. 
Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And Jesus said to them on the the road to Emmaus, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. All that the prophets have spoken, the Old Testament prophets. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then Jesus, beginning from Moses, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, and through all the prophets, which is a summary statement for the entirety of the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, Jesus interpreted to them, his earliest followers, after his resurrection, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He understood this to be things concerning himself. So we're not wrong to see Christ in the Old Testament. In fact, we're quite right to see apocalyptic literature and narrative literature pointing us toward God's plan of salvation. So it produces in us an unending doxology, the melodic line does, because of what he's done for us. His dominion is not a squashing dominion for his people. It humbles us, sure, but it brings us into his family. And he loves us. He disciplines those he loves. Sometimes that's hard. His love for us is profound and permanent. Even the apocalyptic visions of Daniel 7 through 12, because the the book shifts in half from chapters 1 to 6 is more narrative, 7 to 12 is more apocalyptic. They reveal the sufferings of Israel as a necessary preparation for the suffering servant, the anointed one, Christ, who alone brings salvation to his people through death and resurrection. So God's dominion is to be seen also in light of salvation and how it brings doxology to the people. That's one of the reasons we gather every single Sunday is is to sing in gratitude to God for the salvation that He has made for us. How old it can never get to sing that old refrain. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. King Nebuchadnezzar is recognizing a higher authority than himself. And he's got a lot of dominion on earth, to be sure. And that's what every one of us self-assured persons must do to be saved. We must recognize the higher authority and feel the helplessness of one-way salvation through him. And admittedly, even this recognition is a work of God. I don't have a better word than what must you do to be saved. Receive it. He's done it for you. It's a free gift. And then Matthew 6.33 is a favorite verse of mine. It's one I was taught from youth. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And, and then all these things that you're anxious about, that you're worried about, they'll be put in their proper place. First things first. That's what the dominion of God does in the life of even a king like Nebuchadnezzar. Notice in verse 3 that His kingdom is everlasting, His dominion endures from generation to generation. Generation to generation. This is a profound and helpful truth about the permanency of God's work in your life. It's enduring. And it's enduring intergenerationally as we pass forward and share the faith with our children. And even with our children's children. There's Old Testament, New Testament texts that help us understand this. I'm reminded of Deuteronomy 29.29. I shared this one last week. It reminds us that the things revealed in Scripture are enduring and are to be shared generationally. The things that have been shared are to be shared. I'm so glad these things are written down. God knew what He was doing when He spoke and preserved words for us. We we know this by the nature of book writing. Books, they give 
staying power to ideas. We write things down so that our ideas have staying power across generations. And no book of books has had or will have the staying power across generations that this Bible does. It is decreed so. This is not going to pass away. God has granted us this holy writ. There's a reason for it. This is, the, this is God's living and breathing and holy word. Revivals rise on the preaching of the word and the spiritual receptivity of the people, the work of God, and there is no other way. It's always the word working in the people of God. So if you've bought into some kind of a, a scheme of, of how, God, how God's work can be done quicker if we just do it this way, God's speed is not our prerogative. God's word is. We must cling to the truths of the scripture generationally. And let me just say, I am so thankful that we have a church made up pretty much of every living generation. I mean, we, we, we celebrate this week uh, the 80th birthday of one of our members, and next week, the first birthday of one of the babies in our church. That's special. That is a living testimony of the permanency of God's work generation to generation. You see? We can praise Him for that, can't we? The New Testament does not shirk this point either. Consider Peter's sermon at Pentecost. He's preaching to a pre-catechized Jewish audience. They move quickly in their understanding. They already know the known scriptures, but they haven't received the Messiah. In fact, they were around when he was crucified. Peter was preaching to the people to flee their corrupt generation and to receive salvation and follow in baptism. And this is the sentence he uttered. He said, for the promise is for you. Maybe you know it. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So, so in, in conclusion, in summary, God is at work bringing the miracle of salvation in our day. And our focus needs to be on taking this message of salvation to people here and there and everywhere, praying for it and laboring in it. Because salvation, especially in melodic-themed summary texts like this, is front and center for all to see publicly. It's a banner. It's also very private and personal with testimonies of specificity to be shared with individuals. And our salvation is completely permanent because God doesn't change and He doesn't lie and He always keeps His promises. And he that began a good work in you, well, what's he going to be? Faithful to complete it. May you be encouraged by this text of Scripture as we close. 1 Peter 1, 1-9. It reads similarly in a New Testament context. The Apostle Peter said to those that were elect in his day, exiles of the dispersion to cities in Asia Minor, he said, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling with His blood. And he says, sort of like peace multiplied. May, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Shalom. Irene.
peace be multiplied to you. Kairis erene. May it all be multiplied to you. This refrain, grace and peace. Sounds a lot like Neb. Now verse 3. Listen, be encouraged by these last verses of this reading. I'll read verses 3 through 9. If you want to jot it down in 1 Peter 1, be encouraged by the way this reads. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfaded, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been given, you've been grieved by various trials. Anybody got any trials in their lives? You've been grieved by them? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you all love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe. You believe in him, don't you? And you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, unspeakable, and is filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That is the melodic line of Scripture that King Nebuchadnezzar put us on to. Let's pray. God, we take just about a half a minute now and consider 